500 dead zones, in total the size of the entire United Kingdom, where no ocean creatures can live. Three billion people depend on marine ecosystems for their living, three quarters of Earth's surface, three trillion US dollars, and 5% of the global GDP. Our oceans matter. But could the saying, plenty more fish in the sea, soon be obsolete? Let's rock the boat and find out. Hi, we're Connors! A bunch of high school students from Muscatine, Iowa, trying to make a dent in the universe. And this is our podcast. Globally Global! Hey, I'm your host, Hannah Pouts, and you're listening to Locally Global. This week, we're talking about life below water, or SDG 14, and how it concerns us, even when we don't see the damage we're causing. Let's dive in. The 14th Sustainable Development Goal, Life Below Water, is aimed at protecting and managing marine ecosystems from ocean acidification and pollution in a sustainable manner. These policies have an effect locally on small fisheries and even come into play globally under the UN's Convention on the Law of the Sea. What have we been doing these past four years? Well, fish stocks within sustainable limits have finally leveled, and the proportion of protected coastal areas has increased substantially. With that said, there are still 780 million people at risk of coastal eutrophication, land runoff that kills animal life from lack of oxygen. And ocean acidity is 26% higher than in pre-industrial times. It is projected to increase by 100% to 150% by 2100 at the current rate of CO2 emissions. With our combined efforts, by 2030, our oceans will be more sustainable and less polluted. But we've got some work to do. My job connects to the global goal of life below water because I spend most of my time thinking about how to conserve biodiversity. That is Lucy Keith Jiang. She is a marine mammal researcher and conservationist. Lucy has worked both nationally and internationally. In 2018, she received a grant from National Geographic to further African manatee research and conservation. Here, she's talking about how important it is that we understand how our trash affects the entire ocean. Understanding that they are all connected and tied together to an entire ecosystem. So a lot of the work that we do, for example, our education programs, try to teach people about the need to clean the oceans, to not throw your plastic in the ocean. That seems easy, right? I mean, we aren't going to beaches and throwing our trash directly into the ocean. The truth is that each person creates roughly six pounds of trash each day. That's 2,190 pounds per person per year. But trash isn't the only problem. We also have to figure out how to fish sustainably. How do we do that, Lucy? To conserve the fish and not overfish, and just trying to make people understand the connectedness of everything in the marine environment, looking at how the animals that I work with connect to the rest of the ocean. So for example, the cetaceans that we work with. Cetaceans are marine animals with about 89 specific species the most commonly known being dolphins, belugas, and narwhals. Understanding bycatch in fisheries is really important to understand the impact both on the cetaceans and on the fishermen. Those are really important. 
So before we move on, let's define some terms. Bycatch in the fishing industry is when a fish is caught that isn't wanted. This may be because it's the wrong sex, a different species, or simply too young and small. A fishery involves the capture of wild fish for commercial purposes. Neither of these are good. Let's find out why. And I think that's a huge problem worldwide. I think we haven't even really begun to understand the scope of bycatch, and people need to really be confronted with that by seeing pictures and understanding the reality of fisheries worldwide uh, doing incredible damage to our marine ecosystems. Bycatch is a problem that people often feel powerless to do something about. It does seem pretty daunting, right? But all is not lost. We still have some power in this. What is that power? Our dollar. Here is how we can help this problem at home. But I think if they make smart uh, choices in the purchases of seafood and saying we will no longer support seafood that has high levels of bycatch and pressuring companies, I really do believe that that makes a difference. Now, let's move from the fish of our ocean to its living skeleton, coral. My name is Abby Engelman. I'm a coral reef ecologist at Florida State University, and I study coral, which are the ecosystem engineers, meaning they're the architects of coral reef ecosystems. They're the ones that build all the homes and habitats, the nooks, the crannies that are responsible for supporting the abundance of life on coral reefs. Abby is the founder of the website 3DC, and she uses 3D technology in her studies every day to help conserve our coral reefs. Here, she explains what pushed her to make this website. So 3DC is a website that I started kind of as a creative outlet while I was working on my PhD dissertation. The site's meant just to inspire the use of 3D technology, and by that I mean 3D scanning, 3D modeling, and 3D printing, as well as virtual reality. Uh, so inspire the use of that 3D technology in marine science and conservation. 3DC is a way for me to promote the use of these technologies, not only for research, but also for outreach. So if you think about it, the ocean takes up 71% of the Earth's surface, and all of that is entirely masked by the ocean surface. So 3D technology is a way for us to peel back the surface and share the ocean with people around the world. And hopefully by inspiring the use of 3D technologies in research and in outreach, we can promote ways that make people care about these environments and connect them to the life that's hidden below the surface. Along with her website, Abby also studies coral. Here's the deal. Coral is fascinating because after only a few hours, they have to choose where they will live for the rest of their life. As Abby says, they're forever home. I'm a coral reef ecologist and I study what shapes and smells coral seek in their forever home. If we think about ourselves choosing a place to live forever when we're only a few hours or few days old, it's mind boggling. So my research looks at how structures and chemicals found on reefs might influence where coral settle down. They have these sensory mechanisms that allow them to perceive different structural or chemical cues in their environment. And these influence where they ultimately choose to settle down because of course they want to choose the place that's best suited for their survival. In the past, researchers were limited to what we could study when we were physically underwater on scuba or snorkeling. And 3D technology really opens the doors for researchers to recreate reefs virtually rather than studying them 
in the field underwater. That allows us to study reefs in much greater detail and uncover a ton of information that we weren't able to collect in the limited time that we were spending underwater. So by using 3D technology, I'm able to understand more fine scale details of reef structures and understand how these might influence reef dynamics on a broader scale. Hmm, it seems like we skipped something, didn't we? We know why coral's interesting and how 3D tech can help, but why is it in danger? So of course, microplastics are harmful to virtually all marine life in some way or another, and coral are no exception. For coral, if you think about them ingesting the microplastics instead of the microscopic plankton that they may be eating otherwise, they're not getting the food and nutrients that they depend on. So this would deplete their food or energy source. Uh, This can also make coral more susceptible to disease and mortality. So as they're putting energy towards fighting off this foreign object rather than protecting themselves, they're more susceptible to threats and disease. It's more than that, though. By hurting the coral, these microplastics are hurting the entire ecosystem. And this is how. The coral will become saturated with the microplastics, so that when a fish eats part of it, that fish is now infected with the microplastic. This moves up the entire food chain until even the largest predator has been contaminated by plastic. What's shocking, though, is that this isn't the biggest problem facing coral. Microplastics aren't necessarily the biggest contributor to coral degradation. Coral health is largely influenced by bleaching. Bleaching is when coral releases algae. This algae provides up to 90% of a coral's energy. Without it, the coral loses all its color. Bleaching occurs when ocean temperatures rise. And it's happening more frequently with global warming, which puts a lot of stress on the coral. Another contributor is human destruction, of course, overfishing, physical reef damage. Um, These are terrible for reefs because they physically remove all of the components or many of the components of the reef, like the physical structure or the organisms themselves, like the fish or um, invertebrates, the, the seafood that we eat. And they these practices do so at a much higher rate than what nature can repair in its own right. So if we're taking out tons and tons of fish, but these fish can only reproduce at certain rates, then we need to do so sustainably so that we have these fish sources in the future. There's a lot facing our oceans. So what ways can we help? What are the most effective ways to help? Preventative conservation is taking action to ensure sustainable management of an ecosystem. Reactionary conservation, on the other hand, is taking action after the damage has already been done. So this balance certainly needs to shift towards prevention. If we want to ensure the foods, livelihoods, coastal protection, medical advancements, and all the other services that we get from coral reefs will be available 5, 10, 20, or even 50 years from now. But there are tons of ways that we can do that on a smaller scale. So are there ways that people can proactively help conservation? Yes, there are tons of ways that people can make a difference. To help close us out, Abby has three tips how you can help in your everyday life. One easy way to help conservation is to be conscious and aware of your impact on the world. So this is a not so fun, but very eye-opening experiment. Take note of how much trash you throw away on a daily basis, a weekly basis, a monthly basis. I did this a, a year or so ago and realized that to me, in my society at least, 
trash cans were kind of like a black box. I could throw something away and never think twice about it. Take note of how much trash you're throwing away and think about how it adds up between you, your neighbors, and all the people in your town and where that trash might go and what the fate of those items are because ultimately everything we use stays here in one way or another. Another way to help conservation is to be conscious where your money goes. So your dollar is a vote in support of a certain practice and being aware of what a company stands for and the materials they use is super, super important. For example, I recently switched to using laundry detergent that comes in a cardboard box rather than a plastic bottle. I've tried to remove plastic or single-use plastics in particular from my everyday life. So just making these small changes is having a huge impact on my personal plastic consumption and certainly adds up over time. I also try to buy clothes that are secondhand. Many people wear something once or twice and then get rid of it, which leaves a ton of great finds for a fraction of the original cost, which is certainly a win-win considering the fashion industry is one of the top contributors to environmental pollution and waste. Conscious consumption is an easy but super, super important way to do our part. And while you're at it, you can share these practices with friends and family and watch your actions have a snowball effect on the community. So, in conclusion, everything we do on land influences life below water. So doing your part is important regardless of how far you are from the shore. Produced and written by Hannah Pouts. Thanks to my classmate Bianca for her initial framework for this podcast, and Rachel Hansen for editing and feedback. Special thanks to Gina Steffens and Katie Thornton for advice on how to build a podcast. Thanks to Abby Engelman and Lucy Keith Dying for supplying their time and knowledge for interviews. Credit to Anchor and Soundtrap for snazzy music, editing tools, and recording capabilities. And finally, an extra special thank you to National Geographic for their gracious podcasting grant.